Koinonia, Christian fellowship, communion with God and with fellow Christians. Koinonia, an association of people who share common beliefs and activities. This is Koinonia. This is community. I am Tom Brown and your host today, Vocab Malone. This is Koinonia Radio. My name is Vocab Malone. It is a beautiful day here in Phoenix, Arizona. And the year is winding down. And my time filling in for Tom Brown is winding down, too. Actually, I'm going to be taking a hiatus. Yeah, that's right, till probably at least next summer, uh, for the most part. You might see a little bit here and there, but I am taking a small hiatus. But I'm, I'm finishing out the year, and I'm glad to do it. And I wanted to make sure the last few shows I did on Koinonia— by the way, I'm Vocab Malone, everybody— were shows that I really wanted to do. So we talked to Show Baraka last week, uh, a Christian hip-hop artist who's just phenomenal, and uh, you definitely want to go back and listen to that one. And today we're talking to a second-time guest, Gregory Cook. Gregory Cook's website is minorprofits.org. That's right, he actually got that domain name, minorprofits.org. Let me read a little bit from his bio. Quote, I was a pastor for 12 years in the Presbyterian Church in America before completing a Ph.D. in hermeneutics and biblical interpretation at Westminster Theological Seminary. My studies focused on the minor prophets, duh, <laughs> specifically how they relate to each other. I wrote my dissertation on how, on how Nahum, and that's what we discussed last time Greg was on, used illusion and ambiguity, pro- prophesied the destruction of historical Nineveh, but also the spiritual forces empowering Assyria. In the past two years, I've written academic articles arguing against what I consider the faulty views of Nahum in biblical scholarship. I also fa- finished Severe Compassion, the Gospel According to Nahum, in the hopes of making this small prophecy more accessible to the church." I am now branching out into other prophets. I hope to finish books on both the minor prophets as a whole, as well as the historicity of Jonah within the next year or two. Here to talk today about the historicity of the book of Jonah on Quinity Radio is Gregory Cook. Welcome back to the show, Gregory. How you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me. No doubt. Does your wife call you Greg or Gregory? Everyone calls me Greg, but if you publish a book, you got to look smart, so you call yourself Gregory. Does she ever call you Dr.? Uh, not many people call me doctor, and mm-hmm. I feel a little weird about it, but my wife keeps telling me that we paid all those thousands of dollars for it. I better not shy away from it, so you can call me doctor if you want to. <laughs> all, right. all right, well, Dr. Cook, when I asked you about another show topic you would like to do, you said the historicity of Jonah. Now, I immediately found that compelling, but why did you want to do another interview, and why are you doing this book on the historical truthfulness of of the book of Jonah. Jonah is like everybody loves the book because it's so sweet and happy. Uh, and it, and but it's also mocked a lot because people think that it's just so strange. It's it's so out there that uh, just people just make fun of it. And so I got into my head one one day that I knew enough about Assyria and the minor prophets that if I could figure out what was going on, it might be helpful. Maybe that is a good end. How does knowing about Assyria and the Minor Prophets help you understand Jonah better? Well, Jonah went to Assyria, and that was the whole deal God tells him to go. And one of the major questions in the book is that everything that happens in Jonah 3 in Nineveh seems so outlandish that people wonder how in the world it could be true. So you need a background in Assyria to put some of that together, I think. Okay, so Jonah's a book that people kind of love the story of it, 
But you're saying as far as if they look at it being serious, actual history, people shy away from it. Right. You've got the you've got the scholars who don't believe the Bible at all, who just think it's ridiculous. And uh, people have had a hard time answering those skeptics. And so what you're starting to see in the church is people who otherwise take the Bible seriously are starting to wonder whether Jonah is just like a parable, but not actual history. So we're fighting this war, in a sense, to defend the historical value of Jonah, not only from the halls of academia, which we might expect it from there, but actually now in the halls of our Sunday school. And I've actually heard Christians say, is it really something we have to take serious? Can it just be a good story? And I have indeed heard that, and that's why I wanted to do a show today on is the book of Jonah historical? Is it plausible? Here to answer that question today on Koinonia Radio is Greg Cook, a specialist in this field and in this area. When we come back, we're going to ask him, did Jonah happen? Welcome back to Koinonia Radio. My name is Vocab Malone, your favorite Italian-American Christian hip-hop artist turned apologist. That's right, that's me. <laughs> Filling in for Tom Brown, who is none of those things, except for he is a radio host. And sometimes he lets me hang out on his show. I'm here on 1360 KPXQ today talking with one of my favorite guests, Greg Cook, who gets into the Old Testament of the Bible, and he gets into the Minor Prophets. Today, we are talking about Jonah. A lot of you might know Jonah, and I'm going to play a little bit of a children's song about Jonah and the whale. Ray Cook, who did swallow Jonah? Was it a whale? Was it a fish? Bible says it was a big old fish. What's the Hebrew word there? Uh, it's it it's dog, and it means fish. It's just a very generic fish word. Okay, so dog. You said dog. D a g. It's dog. Okay, so dog is a Hebrew noun. Is there an mm -hmm. adjective that modifies it? Uh, it says great fish. The The word great in Hebrew shows up in the book just over and over again. Nineveh is a great city. Just everything's great. So, oh, the fish so it's great. Donald Trump before Donald <laughs> Sorry. It's going to be great. It's going to be huge. <laughs> okay. No, but okay, seriously. So it says great fish. That's all you okay. got? That's all we know about who swallowed Jonah? Well, the... Uh, the fish thing is not my specialty. Uh, the in the in the New Testament it says sea monster. Uh, sea monster. My what do my you issue my issue with Jonah is, uh, I look at the fish swallowing Jonah, and one way or another, it's a miracle. Uh, okay, what is the miracle about the great fish swallowing Jonah? Where where would you sort of need, if you want to put it that way, miraculous elements? For this story to be true. And by the way, I want to remind everyone, having the God 
of the universe as the ultimate background character to all the Old Testament and indeed the whole Bible, when he is the creator of all things, understand that is the true presupposition you go forward as you read these things. You have to ask yourself, as he creates everything from nothing, is it implausible that he has a big fish swallow a man? And I'm, I just want to always frame that philosophically that way so people can understand what we're really dealing with, because that's important as you go into these things. But at the same time, I want to talk about some of the details. So help us out okay. on some of the details, Brother Greg. What's going on? Joan in the well, swallowing. Where do we need a miracle? Why is it a miracle? Well, somehow or another, he gets swallowed and vomited back three days later, and he's alive. And so what's miraculous, how that happens. what's miraculous about that, per se? Well... We don't know scientifically of any creature that's capable of doing that, that that could swallow a person, vomit the person out. And there's a lot of stories about, you know, this sailor surviving in a whale, and they're all very dubious. Uh, and so um, I view Jonah in the fish as, you know, Jesus walked on water and an angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians and I, I just see it as a miracle, uh, and and I can't give a great explanation other than God did it. And my my curiosity with the book is more all the weird things that humans do. So no guesses so, on the type of creature that it would be. Well, I have a son who's has an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, animals. Mm-hmm. And he, he likes to talk, talk to me about a gastric brooding frog, which apparently went extinct a couple of decades ago. They used to lay its eggs and then eat them and then burp them back up and they would be alive. And something in the gastric brooding frog, their, their intestines shut down and, and the little froglets could survive. So he was hypothesizing that God made a gastric brooding fish hmm. or something or other. So... I, I don't have a great answer. My concern is I think there's a lot of people in the church that are willing to accept the miraculous. Okay. Like Jesus walking on water, being right. born of a virgin, and all of the miracle stories in the Bible that are starting to treat Jonah like a parable just because of the human decisions are so strange. So the criticism part of it comes from people saying the human behavior— in the book of Jonah, is not realistically portrayed. Is that what you're saying? Right. I, I think I think if we deal with that, then Jonah just becomes another book that's claiming this miraculous event, and the scoffers are still going to scoff. My concern is mainly for the, the pastor in the pulpit who can't make sense of it and is tempted to say, look, this is just a parable. Okay, so I open up my Bible into the Minor prophet section, and I go to Jonah. Where's something that a critic would say, ah, 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 see, a human would not do that? I mean, what are they saying is an unrealistic portrayal of human behavior in the book of Jonah? Well, most of chapters 1, 3, and 4 would fall in that category. The most outlandish part is in chapter 3, and the one that gets made the fun of the most is probably where the cattle are wearing sackcloth. Okay, well, um, talk about that. Uh, to, can you explain a little bit to people what the significance would be of cattle wearing sackcloth, and what do people say about that, and what's your answer? 
Okay, well, it says in Jonah 3.8, the king of Nineveh says, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. So people get this picture of, you know, well, the dutiful Ninevites have to go out and make garments of sackcloth and put on their cattle and the cattle are all confused. And to them, it just seems too ridiculous for words. Uh, my answer for that is if you look at verse 9, uh, Jonah 3, 9, the king of Nineveh says, Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And the thing that caught my attention there is that he is quoting with one change. Instead of saying Yahweh, he says God. He's quoting Joel 2, 13. I think it's 13. It's either 13 so hold on, or 14. Hold on, hold on. Let, me, let, me, let me follow you. Are okay. you saying that the king of Nineveh is quoting Joel 2.13. What I'm saying is if you look at the Hebrew, it's a verbatim quote. Okay. Except he changes Yahweh to Elohim. So instead of saying Jehovah, he says God. Okay. What's but the other significance? Than that, it's, it's a verbatim quote. What's the significance of the king of Assyria, or the king of Nineveh, I guess I should say, uh, saying this? Well, what I, I started thinking about one night, I, I was praying through, how does Jonah make sense? And it occurred to me, King of Nineveh is quoting Joel, and, and, and I thought, well, that's ridiculous. He couldn't be quoting Joel, and I started thinking about it, and I started looking at Joel and Jonah, and it all lined up. Explain, so, what, do you, what do you mean, you looked at Joel and Jonah, and it all lined up? Okay. Well, I have to I have to give you hopefully not boring Assyrian history lesson, and I'll try and keep it to two minutes. No, the Assyrians are important, especially when you study the Book of Jonah. So go ahead. Right. There were these big nasty empire. They were ruthless, and the kings made decisions uh, almost solely based on um, how do I put it? Divination. Okay. And so. They had these massive libraries of omen texts, okay. and they had these the most educated men in the world in the Assyrian court there to interpret omen texts. And most of what was dug out of Nineveh in 1850 was omen texts. So Nineveh, the city, did get excavated in 1850, and you're saying what it was filled with was omen texts, which are kind of like, I mean, I'm loosely phrasing this, but for people to understand... Magic spell books or what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if if you see this in the sky, then this is going to happen. If you cut okay. up the sheep and the liver looks like this, gotcha. then it means the king's going to die. Stuff like that. Okay. And so, Nineveh, the Assyrians had an obsession with predicting the future, and they did it based off the past. And the kings had these huge groups of scholars who this is what they did all day. And what you have in Joel is Joel predicts a solar eclipse, a lunar eclipse, an earthquake, all in the context of a locust plague. Okay. The book of Joel, okay. which heavily focuses on the day of the Lord concept, which is the idea of God bringing down judgment in a clear kind of way, and Joel specifically focused on this being done through locusts. Okay, so Joel so, predicts this. Joel's yeah, Joel starts with the locust plague, and we know that there were that Assyria was having locust problems in that general time frame. 
and then Joel goes on to predict a solar eclipse, a lunar eclipse, and an earthquake. And we know that those, because you can date eclipses, we know exactly when those happened. The solar eclipse was 763 BC. The lunar eclipse was 761, and the earthquake happened around 760, give or take. And so what, what occurred to me was Joel predicted these things, and the Assyrians found out about it. And when you read Jonah 3, every bizarre thing that they do is exactly what the book of Joel says to do. Okay, so all the things that Joel said to do in his book, you're saying, are what the Assyrians did when Jonah came to tell them to repent. Right, and that's exactly within the character of Assyrian. That's what Assyrians did. They did exactly what their omen text said to do. And so is we got to go out of this break in a second here, but is the cash value of this is you are saying there's cer strong circumstantial evidence that Assyrians had access to the book of Joel. Yes. And we're basing their decisions upon that coupled with Jonah's preaching to them. Yes. And that explains why they put sackcloth and ashes on the cattle. Yes. All right. Just boil it down, baby. All right. This is good uh, stuff. I'm talking to Greg Cook. His website is minorprofits.org. And we're discussing the beloved book of Jonah, but we also are defending the book of Jonah while we do this, letting people know that this is real biblical history. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to Koinonia Radio. My name is Vocab, Vocab Malone. Reason why I got a weird nickname like that is because I used to do a lot of hip-hop. That's right, all around the valley here, the Valley of the Sun here in Phoenix, Arizona. Then I really transitioned into church life, academic life more and more, and now these days I do kind of street apologetics. And in the course of my street apologetics and all that, that's where as you share the gospel with people, you try to answer their questions and show the truthfulness of Christianity, and most certainly that includes the Bible, I run into atheists. Sometimes atheists would love to mock the book of Jonah, because they would say, Jonah, come on, you believe that? Well, some of that same kind of skepticism has spilled over into the church, and you have more and more Christians saying, I don't know if Jonah really happened, but it's a good message. So we want to talk to our brother today, Greg Cook, to help us understand why the book of Jonah is part of God's Word. It is true history, and uh, we want to see how that all plays out. So let's talk about some of the human characters in the book of Jonah. Let's go to the merchants. So the background of the story is, correct me if I'm wrong, Brother Greg, Jonah is trying to flee God's directive to him in a sense, which the directive is a missional directive to go to Nineveh and preach repentance unto those people. He doesn't want to do that, so he takes the ship, heads off in the opposite direction, but some troubling stuff happens while he's aboard. Tell us a bit about what goes on and the behavior of the sailors, and is it plausible or implausible what the sailors do with Jonah in the middle of the storm? The mic is yours, Brother Greg. All right, well, the, as probably most people know, he gets in the ship and a, and a storm comes. And the sailors are scared, and they're 
doing everything they can. And every indication we have from ancient Mediterranean sailors is that they were extremely religious. How do we know that they were religious from the Mediterranean? Like, how do we know stuff like that? I'm just curious. Well, we have um, archaeological shipwrecks. We've got temples. Sailors, very superstitious, and they thought that the, the fate of their lives and their enterprise depended upon the gods being nice to them. And so they, they did more than their fair share of sacrifices and all manner of things. So a storm is interpreted theologically then? Yes. Okay, how would they interpret it, and how is that consistent with what they did in the book of Jonah? Well, they, they've they got a storm, and this one's particularly bad, and so they decide that this is not just a storm. There's some form of judgment. So they cast lots to figure out who, who caused trouble, and archaeologists have found uh, basically primitive dice games and, and things like that, that that's consistent with this. Uh, and then there's, there's an oddity in the book of Jonah in that uh, it's, he tells them ahead of time that he's fleeing from Yahweh, mm-hmm. but, but they don't know that he's a Hebrew. Oh, they don't. It's, well, if you, read, if you read Jonah 1 carefully, mm-hmm. it, it says that I'm back in Joel, but if you read it carefully, it tells, them, it tells us that he had already told them that he was fleeing from Yahweh, but they didn't know that he was a Hebrew. And to me, that's that's the key to understanding what they did, because in the book of Joel, God puts a curse on the Phoenicians and on the Philistines for doing three things. If you want to turn to Joel, do you want me to read it or you want to read it? Hosea, Joel. Okay, I'm in Joel. R- read Joel 3, 4 through 6. I'm in the KJV, just so everybody knows, and I'm going to read 4 through 6 of chapter 3 of Joel. Yea, and what have ye to do with me, O Tyre and Zidon and all the coasts of Palestine? Will ye render me a recompense? And if ye recompense me swiftly and speedily, will I return your recompense upon your own head? Because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my gold goodly pleasant things the children also of judah and the children of jerusalem have ye sold unto the unto the grecians that ye might remove them far from their border so is that in reference to a slave trade that's slave trade and what happened was the phoenicians were the best sailors in the mediterranean and tarshish was as far as you'd go and so it's safe to assume that the, the ship was a phoenician ship and the the captain was a Phoenician captain. Jonah goes to Joppa, which is a Philistine city. Uh, and Jonah in Joel 3, 4 puts a curse on the Phoenicians and the Philistines because in verse 5, they took God's silver and gold. And in verse 6, they carried God's people away and took them to Greece. And it also says that they, where does it say, they cast lots. Um, All right. Oh, so in verse three, it says they cast lots for my people. So what happens is in when they find out that he's a Hebrew, they're not thinking this is coming because Jonah's disobedient. They're saying that this is a curse from Yahweh upon us because we cast lots for Jonah, 
we took his money and we're carrying him off to Greece. So, so this would require them to be in some way aware of Joel's prophecy or Joel's curses. Yes. Okay, and then you're getting into the book of Jonah in verse 9 where it says, And he said unto them, this is in response to the question, What people art thou? What is thy country? Whence comest thou? He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So you're saying... He had already told him, hey, we're running from God, but he didn't say that he specifically was a Hebrew, and that's when they became worried. Right. So and, what, did and they, which, oh, what you ahead. see there is that they're scared of the storm, but when they say, look, I'm a Hebrew, they become terrified. Right, okay. Uh, and so they're like, okay, Yahweh's getting us back because we're doing this again, and we've already heard what Joel said. Right. Okay, so then what about their behavior after that? You know, not well, wanting to throw him over, then throwing him over— but then being worried because they threw him over. What about all that? Is that criticized? Is that characteristic? What about that? Well, I think that that strengthens my theory because if they're slave traders, which there's every indication that they would have been, why not just throw them over? But they don't want to. And I think the reason is they see the, the, the storm as a curse on them for what they're doing to Jonah, even though they didn't, weren't doing it on purpose. Okay, so verse and fourteen. So the reason that wherefore they cried, to guy back to, well, I was going to read ahead. this part. I think it has to do with what you're saying. Wherefore they cried unto the Lord and said, "We beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee." So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea, and the sea ceased from her raging. Right. Now, what about this? The men fear the Lord exceedingly, and it uses Yahweh there, and offered right. a sacrifice unto the Lord, and it uses Yahweh again, and made vows. Pagans are going to do that? Well, they would have known the name of Yahweh. They would have. And, and again, I'm going back to this idea that Joel accurately predicted this solar eclipse and this earthquake. This In the book of Zechariah, which was written several hundred years later, it references this earthquake. And so the earthquake was so severe that it was remembered as a catastrophic event several hundred years later, and the solar eclipse was this huge deal. And if somebody in, in 760 B.C. successfully prophesied those things, sailors who lived their lives by the heavens, by looking at the stars in the sky, would have heard about it, and they would have been terrified about a God who could do that. And what about made vows? What kind of vows do you think pagans were making to Yahweh? Well, these are guys... I, I think one of the things that's not helpful in Jonah is we think about it as like a Billy Graham crusade where the sailors came forward right. uh, and the Ninevites came forward to an altar call. Right. That's not what's going on here. These are extremely religious people. Yeah. And they're not thinking about like, they're not thinking monotheistically. They're all of a sudden realizing that whoever this Yahweh person is, is greater than any of the gods that they've been serving. So offer a sacrifice. Most... What kind of sacrifice do you think these pagan sailors would offer on the deck of their boat? Well, they they routinely offered sacrifices. Of what? On the... What did they what did they sacrifice on a boat? Well, you just you take animals and like I said they were extremely religious people. 
and they had rituals for when you get in trouble, this is what you do. And so this was just normal sailor okay. behavior. That the gotcha. abnormality was that they were sacrificing the Yahweh. Gotcha. Now what about this? Right after in verse 17, it says the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Now I know we discussed the great fish a little bit prior, but what about that Hebrew word prepare? Is that significant in the context of the fish? I think it's ambiguous. I, I Obviously, it's he told him, hey, come over here and be ready. I think it could mean that it was a unique species that we don't have, or it maybe doesn't. And so I think it could mean a number of things, and, and I'm not sure. The word prepared, do you have any background on the Hebrew for that word off the top? I don't remember what it is, but a lot of the vocabulary in Jonah, and I've, I've looked at that word, it's, it's generic enough, like fish, that it doesn't give you a whole lot to go on. Okay, what about this? Uh, we're going to get to some of the human behavior, but since we're in verse 17, I want to ask. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What about this idea of three days, three nights? How long does that actually mean Jonah was in the belly of the well? Is this three full days, three full nights? Or is it true this concept of Hebrew reckoning where they kept time any part of the day was the day? Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, I'm not sure I got any more to go on than you do. When I read Jesus talking about the sign of Jonah and comparing his death, burial, resurrection to that, uh, it's obvious that Jesus sees a correlation between what he's going through. And so the New Testament gives us more to go on as far as Friday to Sunday than the Old Testament does as far as Jonah's just telling us three days and three nights. And Do you think and, Jonah actually died in the well? A, or do you think it was sort of euphemistic in a way? I, I think he either died and was resurrected or he went through three of the most excruciating days that a human's ever gone through. So one way or another, he was in a hell-like state. And we see God's sovereignty over all creation. And this is where I bring us back to Genesis. Remember, this is the God who created everything. Chapter 2, verse 10 says, And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. And it also says that uh, the, the, the Lord had prepared the fish to come get him, basically. So God is in control of his creation, which is not really a shocker. He's in control of the storm. He's in control of the seas. He's in control of the fish. Back with Jonah in a second. And yes, that is the point. Jonah was a prophet. Ooh, ooh, but he really never got it. Sad but true. He's only watching you can spot it. A doodly doo. He did not get the point. Now Jonah sets sail on a pirate ship in a dreadful gale. Got eaten up by a giant whale, but managed not to be dead. You think he would learn a lot from being saved from an awful spot? But the second chance that he had got, he didn't want to be spread. to Koinonia Radio. You're probably not used to hearing that. That is Jonah VeggieTales movie. That's what I'm playing. Jonah was a prophet, VeggieTales. I actually dig that song now. They had to have some artistic license there. Some of the words rhymed. You know, it says whale. 
It just says great fish. But nonetheless, I do like the song. It's kind of catchy. Jonah was a prophet. Ooh, ooh. So, Greg Cook, have you ever heard that song before? Uh, sadly, yes. Ah, excellent. I love it. Uh, that was actually the first date movie I had with my wife, believe it or not. The Veggie Tales movie. So I am talking today on Quinity Radio to Greg Cook. He's written a book on Nahum. It's a great commentary. I really encourage you to get it, The Gospel According to Nahum. And he's working on something on the book of Jonah. And we've been talking about the behavior of the characters in the book of Jonah, showing how it indeed is historical. Because a lot of people these days question Jonah, saying, I don't think it really happened. Let's talk about Jonah getting spit up on dry land and going into the city of Nineveh and he preaches, and he says, basically, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. But then in verse 5, it says, The people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. Talk a little bit about this um, behavior by Jonah and by the people of Nineveh, the seat of the Assyrian Empire. Realistic or no? Plausible or no? Well, what you said about the seat of the Assyrian Empire, that's that's been one of the problems because Nineveh was not the capital at the time. What about seat? <laughs> that that's a yeah, it's it's Jonah says the king of Nineveh, which is another problem because there's no other archaeological record of such a person. Okay, so, so we're not really sure who this king of Nineveh would be in history then. Well, it's argued and it's also mocked by scholars who say it's just made up centuries later because there wasn't a king of Nineveh and Nineveh wasn't even the capital and the king of Assyria wouldn't have been in Nineveh. What we do know of Nineveh, what we do know of Assyria at the time was that it was in the midst of a civil war. Okay. And it was also at a time period where the monarchy had, had less control over the nation than ever. Okay. And so what is being described in Jonah 3 is basically a warlord. Okay, so you're saying at the time, the great Assyrian Empire was having its own internal struggles, and so the king of Nineveh would not be the king over the whole empire, and the Assyrian Empire at this time is not actually really being ran from Assyria. And so... The a person you're saying is more like a warlord, the person being described as the king of Nineveh, this is the person who is repenting in the book of Jonah? Right. So we do or don't know anything about this person? This is a period of time where we have very, very little Assyrian history. Okay. The very little Assyrian history that we do have validates these events. What do we have, telling us and how does it validate it? What do we have, and how does it uh, validate it? It's telling us that there's that there's strife and there's plague at this time, and it's telling us that the king is weak, and regional governors are strong, and so the king of Nineveh is likely a a person who's who has a faction in a civil war. Probably, I mean, similar to what you're seeing in the Middle East today, okay. where um, you have a strong dictator lose control, and factions rise up who control territories. And ironically, is not 
ancient Nineveh roughly equivalent with the modern-day city of Mosul in northern Iraq? Is this correct? Right, it is. And and the, the ancient site is exactly where they're fighting right now. But it would not be correct to say that at the time of Jonah that this is the seat of the Syrian Empire at the time. That's not correct at the time this book was written, correct? Right. Okay. So did that makes it... Is this what you're saying? It makes it more plausible in a sense that even this could happen because they have a little bit of autonomy within their own city at the time Jonah comes through. And so a warlord could sort of have more local control and be able to do something like what he did here. Is that factor in? Well, Assyrian kings had absolute control over whoever they ruled, so that's not a problem. The, The thing that you have is you have these details that seem odd. Such as? Such as that it says king of Nineveh instead of Assyria, and that he goes to Nineveh instead of going to Kala, which was the, the where, capital Where is Kala now? What's Kala uh, now? Kim, Kala is Nim, Nimrud, which is also in the news. They're also fighting, they were fighting there last week, it's I think. called Nimrud? Like from <laughs> Nimrod? Or what? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know there was a city with that name. I knew. I heard about Mosul a lot. I didn't know about a city called Nimrud. Uh, N-I-M-R-U-D. Look it up and oh, Google wow. News. Crazy, crazy, crazy. Okay, yeah. so um, what is the rough time frame? You're talking about, you know, Assyria at this time. What is the time frame here of this book of Jonah? Well, it tells us Jonah, son of Amittai. We have, we have a um, reference to him in 2 Kings 14.25 mm-hmm. during the reign of Jeroboam II. Okay. He reigned from 793 to 753. So that's the general time frame, and then that's the general time frame for the Assyrian history we know about. Right. But the like I said, if if my theory is right about the the eclipse, that happened in 763. The earthquake happened around 760. And then there's a very intriguing entry in the Assyrian records in uh-huh. 758 BC that says peace in the land. And so I think I think Jonah was in Nineveh in 758. Okay, so if you, if someone said, hey, Greg Cook, you're an expert on the Minor Prophets, when do you think the events of Jonah happened? You would say 758 B.C., my friend. 758 B.C. Okay, so that's 758 years approximately before the birth of Christ, everybody. So that gives us some idea about it. What about their repentance of sorts. Uh, is that possible? Would these guys really do that? I mean, these cruel Assyrians that that uh, were known to be wicked and vicious, I mean, would they turn to Yahweh? Are they turning to Yahweh? What's happening even in the book of Jonah? All right, imagine yourself, you have a worldview that human beings are just a pawn of the gods. All right. And that everything that happens around you is a result of the gods. Okay. And you have a Hebrew prophet who accurately predicts a solar eclipse, and then it happens. And he accurately predicts an earthquake, which is the most destructive thing that's happened to the Middle East you're in 300 years. To, you're referring to Joel's prophecy. Right. So Joel and prophesied that in, in his book, and you're saying they would know about that. Right. Okay. But also what we know from Assyrian history is that they're in the midst of a civil war, and there's multiple mentions of plague at the time. So the Assyrian Empire is being destroyed in the midst of cosmic signs that are beyond anything anyone's ever seen before. And so if they took what Joel said as authoritative, and then all of a sudden a Hebrew prophet shows up one day 
and says, you've got 40 days. How would they know he was a Hebrew? He says he's a Hebrew. What language are they communicating in? I'm just curious how this actually works. Well, the Assyrians spoke Aramean uh-huh. at the time, Aramaic, um, which, which it's extremely likely Jonah knew. And also in 701, when... Sennacherib sends his army to Jerusalem, his herald speaks in Hebrew. And the story says in 2 Kings, the men say, stop speaking in Hebrew, speak in Aramaic. Oh, yeah, yeah, because they don't want everybody to hear. So it's entirely likely that Jonah Jonah was from the northern part of Israel Mm -hmm. that was conquered by the Arameans. So it's entirely likely that he spoke Aramaic and the people he was talking to knew Hebrew. So that's not a problem. So they could have bilingual communication even. It's entirely likely. How long would it take Jonah to walk through the city? What is the picture of him actually doing this? Like, what are the logistics of this great well, city? That's that's another issue, is it says it was a three-day journey, and the most natural way to read that is it's 60 miles across. Okay. And so people excavate Nineveh, and they go, look, this is three miles. Or I, I think, you know, I, I forget the measurements, but... Nineveh at its largest was not that big, and so they'd say this is ridiculous that it's a three-day journey. So you're saying the Bible in 3.3 of Jonah says three days journey because it's an exceeding great city. However, when we excavate ancient Nineveh, it doesn't seem like a three-day's journey. Right. So what's the problem? If if it's a city-state governed by a warlord, it's entirely possible that he has control over a diameter of 60 miles. And so three days' journey has to be 60 miles, according to ancient measurements and all that? No, it doesn't have to be, but people go, you know, what's, how long would it take somebody with a camel to walk for a day? And they go, well, it's 20 miles. And so they go, well, three days' journey is the most natural way to read Jonah 3.3 3 is saying 60 miles. And there's other ways to read it, but people have trouble trying to figure out how it was a three-day journey for— So Jonah Jonah is just yelling loudly throughout the city, and the king hears him and sends an edict? How does that work logistically, realistically? Well, Jonah shows up, and he's a prophet, and he makes this claim, 40 days and it'll be overturned. I think knowing how seriously the Syrians took things like that, I think some soldiers grab him and they interrogate him. They grab some diviner and he says he may be onto something. The diviner goes to the king. I think that's all that needed to happen. Interesting stuff. Well, listen, we've only got, I think, one segment and it's very short. But if we could end with this question of what about Jonah's behavior in chapter four? Is that realistic? And maybe we can end the interview with Greg Cook, who's written a fantastic book on the book of Nahum called the Gospel According to Nahum, Severe Compassion is the name of the book, uh, will be speaking one more time to us about the historicity of the great book of Jonah. It's been a great show. It's not over quite yet, though, here on Queen and Radio today. I'm your guest host, Vocab Malone. I've enjoyed this conversation very much. I encourage you, during the break, pop out Jonah. Read it.
This is Quinn and Eager Radio. My name is Vocab Malone. We are winding down the show. It's sad but true. I've been talking to Greg Cook about this wonderful book, Book of Jonah. He's got a book coming out on Jonah, it looks like, defending the historical truth of it. And so far, we've discussed really how the actions of the people in the book are indeed consistent with the background information we know about the Assyrians, the Hebrews, and uh, other groups of people in that area, such as the Mediterranean sailors who were likely Phoenicians. And now I want to end with asking him about Jonah's attitude and behavior before, during, and after. Is that realistic or not? Greg Cook, what about Jonah in Jonah? It, it is realistic. He uh, came from the northern part of Israel, it's in Second Kings, it says that he came from Gath Hefer, which is in the northern part. If he went to Nineveh in 758, it would only be 36 years before the Assyrians destroyed his homeland in 722. And Jonah, I think, put that together. The Assyrian Empire was imploding on itself, and if they repented, a people that was a dire threat to his own nation— would be revived, and I, I think that explains his anger. Okay, so he is upset about God extending their life of their empire because he's going to grant them repentance, and he's worried about what that would mean for Israel. Yeah, if you look in Joel 3, 9, um, Proclaim ye this among the Gentiles, prepare war, wake up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up. Joel 3 is prophesying uh, a very strong army coming against Israel and Jerusalem. And I think Jonah saw his call from God as a fulfillment of Joel 3.9. So he felt like, you believe, God was using him to keep the Assyrian Empire long around long enough to basically go beat up Israel. Right. And who wants to do that? <laughs> right. Right. And plus, you had the past treatment by the Assyrians by, uh, you know, towards his neighbors and all that. So you got valid reason for his reaction in the story. Well, you have, uh, let's see, what do we got, 250? Want to say one more thing about this book? You got about 15 seconds. <laughs> Go ahead, uh, Brother Greg. If I can just put a quick plug in, if if anybody wants my book on Nahum and they go to Christian Audio and they put in the coupon code VOCAB, Christian Audio will sell it to you for $5. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Yep. Thanks for having me.